tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, we have an interesting show today, even uh, the book of Baruch. We may actually have his fingerprints. Literally, This is going to be interesting. So let's not waste any more time. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created. And you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. And on this feast of St. Teresa of Lisieux, I ask you, Lord, to bless Bishop Olson of Fort Worth, who has a very great devotion to... St. Teresa, the little flowers, St. Teresa of Lisieux, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, I, I remember good old good old Bishop Olson. He had a great devotion to St. Teresa of Lisieux back in seminary when devotion wasn't cool. But I don't want to go there. I want to go to the readings instead. Let's open the big book on the coffee table. Where did I put it? Where did I put it? There it is. Okay. Today we have the book of Baruch. And Baruch was an interesting person. Uh, Baruch was the uh, um, uh, the secretary of the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, his name was Baruch ben Neriah, Neriah, uh, or Neriah, depending how you want to pr- pronounce it. And Baruch means blessed. Uh, and he was a, an historical character who lived, oh, I want to say... 570 years before Christ, and uh, uh, he was uh, um, from the Jewish upper class, and he was a he was a chamberlain of, of King Zedekiah, and he functioned as a secretary or a scribe to the prophet Jeremiah. And very interesting, uh, in 1975, a clay well, it's called a bulla. Uh, if you ever wonder, oh, I'm off the track. Again, already, not two minutes into the show, and I'm off the track. I'm wondering if people have a great question about why they call certain papal documents papal bulls. That is because it is from the Latin word bulla. A bulla was a, a an impression made by a seal, such as a sealing ring or a sealing cylinder um, uh, into clay or wax, and uh, these documents put out by the Pope would have the papal seal on them. 
Uh, and so each would have the, you have the, the seal and the seal makes a bulla. Uh, and so that's why they're called, they're called papally sealed documents. I had the authentication. So if <laughs> the voice in my head is saying, um, it sounds like an Italian soup, but ah, he's Italian. What are you going to do? So, uh, a bulla, <laughs> yeah, bulla, like a bulla, what you got. Uh, no, boy, are we off the topic, but it's interesting. So this, this bulla was found that, that, um, you know, this is kind of, it is kind of an interesting, um, um, thing in terms of sp- spirituality. We talk about being sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're the clay or the wax into which the Holy Spirit is pressed, making uh, an image, the very image of Christ. Uh, that's that's the idea, that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And when something was sealed, it meant this belongs to such and such a person. Don't open it. You don't have the right to open it. You'd have strings or ribbons, and they would you'd pour the the clay or the wax on on these strings and ribbons, and then you would impress your seal in them. It really worked like a credit card. That's why it's it's amazing in the story of the prodigal son when he gives his father when his father gives him a ring, he's giving him a credit card after he spent half his fortune. He's giving him a, this is this is too much, but that's for another day. Well, they found this um, bulla. And problem is, it wasn't, um, they didn't know the provenance of it. They didn't quite know where it was from. But it seemed authentic. But uh, they actually, in 1996, a second clay bulla uh, appeared with the identical inscription, uh, and it was stamped with the same seal. The bulla, is this, this little uh, wax, or rather clay uh, bulla, this clay, I don't know, we have nothing like it, this clay seal, uh, had an actual fingerprint on it. It may be the fingerprint of the of the of the uh, author Baruch. I think that's kind of interesting. That again, this is history, and it's not, you know, for me as a a student of the classics, uh, as it were. And by them, I don't mean the Marx Brothers and W. C. Fields. I, I mean, you know, what Socrates and, or as you might call them, Socrates. Uh, those guys. Uh, that's only that's almost contemporary to them. So we think of this ancient, ancient. Well, yeah, it was ancient, but it was a period of great literacy and and uh, great human philosophical and religious progress. There's no reason to think that these bullae that are found in the ruins of Jerusalem or in the excavations around Jerusalem aren't authentic. The problem we have is the Book of Baruch, which well. May not be authentic. Baruch is one of the so-called Catholic books. It's a deuterocanonical book, um, which some scholars think was written later. Um, it, it's, it, it's, I don't think it's a terribly important thing. Uh, it's not in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it is found in the Septuagint. And even uh, St. Jerome didn't include it in the Vulgate. It, it, it began to be accepted by the Catholic Church around 800 AD. Um, but it has been decided that it is an inspired book of the Bible. Now, I've shared this with you before. People get all upset about that. Well, it's not It's not in the Bible. It's the Catholics added it. Well, this is the one book in the Bible that it might be said was added by the Catholic community over time. But then councils of the church have since, um, what's the word, um, authenticated it as coming from the Holy Spirit. And we reverence the scriptures not because they're what Moses said or, or 
because they're what Paul said or Jesus said. Jesus said, Ma, what's for dinner? I'm sure he said that in his, in his perfect humanity, uh, because I imagine his mother was a perfect cook. Well, uh, that's not in the Bible. Uh, well, that's because Jesus may have said it, but it wasn't the speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the speaking of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the church. And that's why we revere the words of Scripture. Not because Jesus said it, not because Paul said it, not because Moses said it. That's important, but because the Holy Spirit has said it through the ministry of the church. Uh, it's an attitude to Scripture, I think, that's very important because there's so many projects, like you hear about the Jesus Seminar, which are a bunch of prosperous people in the North Shore of Chicago who decide every year whether Jesus said this or didn't say that. And, uh, well, it's very easy to take things out of the Bible that Jesus uh, didn't say because, well, if he did say them, you don't agree with them. Uh, to me, that's the ultimate arrogance that, that people 2,000 years later say, well, Jesus probably didn't say that. Well, okay, maybe he didn't say it. But the Holy Spirit said it, working through the ministry of the church, and I still must take it into account and obey it. All right, uh, moving along to the book itself, whether Baruch wrote it or was written later, um, the uh, it's just clear that uh, we have been disobedient to the Lord our God, and the evils and curses that the Lord enjoined upon Moses his servant at the time he led our ancestors forth from the land of Egypt to give us a land flowing milk with hun and honey cling to us even today. If God has said it, uh, it's going to happen, and you can't get around that. Um, this is this is uh, true whether Baruch wrote it or not. <laughs> so, justice is with the Lord our God. Today we are flushed with shame. So, you know that that uh, as I said the other day. Um, so many people feel God has abandoned us, and, and well. God hasn't abandoned us. We've abandoned God. And, well, let me see. I scrolled down way too far. And we that brings us to the gospel. Luke, the 10th chapter, the 13th verse and following. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty deeds done in your midst had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. And we, we go down to, um, uh, as for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll go down to the netherworld. Whoever listens to you listens to me, whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Now, I, I, I used the, the text in Scripture the other day, where it receives a little child receives me. And in our rejection of life, we have, in fact, rejected God. We said, go away, we'll get in touch with you when, you, when we need you. And God doesn't work like that. That's that's God is not a whipping boy who can be summoned at will. Um, you know, that's not how it works. Uh, when you when you have an encounter with God, you have met someone who cannot be cajoled, conned, fooled, tricked. He can't be bargained with. Uh, I tell I've told you this a thousand times. God has this problem. He thinks he's God. And he's going to spend most of my life teaching me that. That's the first lesson of the spiritual life. God is God. I am not. And once you get that down, then you can begin to make some progress spiritually. I'm not God. God alone is God. 
God has this problem. Let me say it again. He thinks he's God. And you know what? He's right. All right, let's go to the specific. It's very interesting. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. They form what is called the Gospel Triangle. Bethsaida and Capernaum are, are lakeside towns in the Lake of Galilee. I'm going to start calling it the Lake of Galilee because it ain't a sea. It's a very large lake. And they're on the coast. And Chorazin is up the hill. Um, you can walk. Uh, it's a, it'll be a hard day's walk, but it, it's possible if you can walk 20 miles or meh, not even 20. Chorazin is about three miles up the hill from Capernaum. Capernaum, uh, the Sea of Galilee is below sea level. The Lake of Galilee is below sea level. And uh, Jericho, which is near the Sea of, of uh, the Dead Sea, so-called, uh, is the lowest inhabited place on earth. It's way below sea level. And uh, if there was a good earthquake, the whole valley would flood. Uh, but Galilee is is a very beautiful place. And around the Lake of Galilee, uh, there was a great population at the time of Christ. They had a number of harvests a year. It could, it could uh, accommodate a lot of people right down there. But Jesus, in order to get away from people, would go up out of the valley to the drier area up the up the the hills um, that surrounded the Lake of Galilee. And Chorazin is right at the top. It's a beautiful view, and it was a tiny town, and uh, uh, it's about three miles up the hill from Capernaum. And then, if you walk, I think it's probably about five miles. To the east, you come to the town of Bethsaida, which they've only recently excavated. And at the time of Christ, it was on the sea coast and or the the coast, the, the shore of the lake. And then, if you went to Bethsaida and got in a boat and came back, oh, I want to say it's maybe seven miles, maybe not even maybe five miles as the crow flies back to Capernaum. That's called the Gospel Triangle. Jesus did most of his work in those three places and they fell into uh, depopulation and obscurity and they were completely lost to science to history to archaeology until the 19th and 20th century we had no idea where they were and Capernaum was unearthed and uh, has been very much excavated uh, and Peter's house is there it's a wonderful privilege I had once to say mass in Peter's house, <laughs> and uh, uh, very interesting. That's for another day. And the the uh, uh, yeah, voice in my head just reminded me, it's a glass floor. You're looking down into quite possibly the room where Jesus stayed uh, when he was visiting. But um, that's, as I said, for another day. And and Chorazin, up the hill, it's, it's barely excavated now, and Bethsaida only recently has been identified. They were completely lost. These are the three towns in which Jesus did most of his work. The Gospel Triangle, that little area, is where Jesus did most of his ministry. And, you know, people, I want to know, the, the Bible's the story of Jesus. No, it's not. New Testament isn't the story of Jesus. These things are written for our salvation. But there's so much more. John said there's infinitely more. All the books in the world couldn't hold what Jesus said and did. And... The thing is that that the only place where Chorazin and Bethsaida are mentioned in the scriptures is this passage. And he did most of his work there. How much more there is to know about Jesus. But, you know, we Catholics are so lucky 
because we can get to know him in the tabernacle, too. I feel sorry for people who only have the Bible. I love the Bible, as you know. Uh, and I, you can't, I don't think you can hear the Holy Spirit at all accurately unless you really are a Bible fanatic, unless you're really reading the Bible. But that said, we have something even more wonderful than the Bible. We have the Lord in the tabernacle, in the Blessed Sacrament, in the Holy Eucharist. So, speaking of the Holy Eucharist, I think it's time to talk about mass hysteria. Oh, the banquet. Oh, the banquet. As I said the other day, it isn't a banquet. It's a covenant sacrifice. And in covenant sacrifices, you ate with the person to whom you were making covenant. Uh, that's a very important thing. What is a covenant? A covenant is, I give you myself that you might give me yourself. A contract, I give you that you might give me. In other words, uh, a profession that we won't mention because there are little ears here, uh, listening, I assume, uh, that has to do with the intimacy between adults and, or men and, man and woman. Uh, that's, that's a contract. Uh, in other words, when the business is over and the goods and services and money changes hands, the relationship is over. A covenant, the relationship is never over. Uh, the covenant of marriage deals with the same kind of intimacy that that contract that I don't want to allude to uh, uh, touches, uh, that it deals with. You see the difference? One ends when the money changes hands. The other ends when one of the covenanters died. The word sacrament is a word that means covenant. The word berith or bris in Hebrew is covenant. This is the covenant of, this is the new covenant in my blood. A covenant, I give you myself that you might give me yourself. That's what mass is, the renewal of our covenant with the Lord. So I, I think that's a very important thing. Well, you know, the, the, the Mass over 2,000 years got a lot of accretions, a lot of extra things. This saint put in his favorite prayer, and that pope put in this prayer. And and there was a sense of a need for for um, uh, kind of scaling back a bit. Uh, and very interestingly, some people read uh, stuff by Justin Martyr, St. Justin Martyr, who lived in the Holy Land, probably born around 100, died around 165. Uh, he was martyred by the Romans, which is why we call him St. Justin the Martyr. He was a Greek but who lived in the Holy Land. And he, in his uh, first apology, his first explanation of the faith, um, described the Mass on the day they call Sunday. They gather together. The memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophet are read as long as time permits. And then when the reader has ceased, the one presiding, priest or bishop, instructs and exhorts the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. And uh, when prayer is ended, bread and, wine, bread and wine and water are brought. And the one who presides in like manner offers prayers and thanksgiving according to his ability. Remember, this is... This is uh, a hundred years after Christ, even less than a hundred years. 
And the people assent, saying, Amen. Then there is a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks has been given. And remember, the word thanks in Greek is Eucharist. And those who are absent a portion is sent by the deacons. In other words, communion calls by the deacons. Uh, and uh, there's a collection. Things are given to help you. So it sounds like Mass as we have it. However, the liturgists tried to pattern the modern Mass, the new Mass, on this model. It's very interesting because there's a kind of reasonable fallacy there, a logical fallacy. That which is older is better. It's not always true. You know, that, that certain things have developed and they're good things. So when I was young, we wanted to get back to the early church. And as you know, I, I was very involved in, in the founding of the Pentecostal movement, the Charismatic Renewal. And it's very much part of my, my spirituality, uh, the, 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 the idea of Pentecost. However, one of the things that convinced me that Pentecostal renewal, charismatic renewal, was really a recapitulation of the early church was that it had all of the same screwy problems and controversies that the early church did. Just because it's early doesn't mean it's good. And in the renewal and reform of the liturgy, the one shouldn't one shouldn't gauge things by what's old and what's new, but should gauge things by what is appropriate. And um, you know, Jesus said uh, that that the good steward is able to bring the old and the new out of the storeroom. I, I think that's a very important thing for us. Uh, let me pull that up. The old and the new. Okay, okay. Oh dear, uh, the voice in my head saying I don't have much time. Oh dear. Well, I'll probably have to give you that quote when we get back. But uh, Jesus said that the good steward brings out what is old and what is new. So this kind of saying, well, it's old, so it's better, or it's new, so it's better. Neither are true. And I think we have to really try to discern what the Lord is saying. Okay, that's Mass Hysteria for today. Not nearly as fun and provocative as I usually am, but I'll be fun and provocative when we come back. You can call in at 888-914-9149. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash Forrester. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his Nicholas I loved this song. I do too. <laughs> you loved me ere I knew him. It's an homage to Nick the First, if you're listening, we love you. <laughs> okay. All right, let's go to letters. Now, remember, you can call in. The phones are open, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. This is a letter from Alice. In the good old days, Catholic priests used to wear berettas, a custom I wish had never gone away. 
the, the Beretta is. Don't confuse it with the small gun. It's it looks like a kind of Mickey Mouse hat. I I wear a Beretta. The times I do the old mass, I've worn Berettas, and in academic processions when I used to process academically. Um, uh, one of your bumper songs, Quando Rainy Mrod got me on a Jewish music kick. I recently came on a bunch bunch of various cantors on YouTube singing Kol Nidra Nidre. Oh, that's gorgeous. Most of them were wearing headgear that looks suspiciously like Berettas. Is there a link between Catholic priest Berettas and Jewish cantor Berettas? Yes, there is. The the Jewish cantor Beretta is called the Keppel, and I think it's mostly worn by German Jews. Both the Beretta and the Keppel come from academic hats uh, that, that, that uh, you know, you got to wear. I don't know if you've ever been in an academic procession, but you have the mortarboard hats, uh, you know, that they, most people wear. And then you have the, the dean of the college who's wearing a floppy hat that makes him look like John Calvin or Thomas More. And then you have the clergy wearing their little pointy hats, and it's an academic hat. That's what I would wear walking in solemn academic procession, of which I've probably done twice in my life. But it was always fun. Uh, so back when I was teaching dead languages to comatose seminarians. So yes, Alice, there is a relationship between the Keppel and the Beretta. Uh, they both are sort of academic hats to tell the world, even if I don't look like it, I'm really very smart. All right, moving along. I got something from John that is is uh, wonderful. Uh, this is uh, uh, John. Um, yeah, I, I'm believing it's New York. I know I've forgotten. John, you're from New York, I think, if you're listening. Or are you from New Jersey? I think, well, at any rate, uh, he really has shared an you know, what I think was a, a, an insight uh uh, about you know the 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 throwing uh, the children's bread to the dogs and I'm busy pointing out he never called her a dog he called her a canarian, and John pointed out that doesn't that misses part of the point, and this is a wonderful explanation of what he means. Uh, yes, Father, I heard in fact your answer yesterday to the question about giving dogs it went beyond what you'd previously mentioned. Uh, my point has been a semantic one in that Jesus was not making a direct comparison of a person to animals, but animals to their natural behavior. This is interesting. Uh, it is not an offense to God that a pig tramples a Bible, as when a thinking person does so. In other words, you don't give what is holy to dogs. That is a, a phrase repeated in the scriptures. It's not because the dog is bad, but because it's holy. In other words, it's designed for me as a human being, as a thinking, moral being. God, I love that. It, it sums it up. It is not an offense to God that a pig tramples the Bible as when a thinking person does. Uh, uh, when someone is true to their nature, and what Jesus was in part saying to this Canaanite woman was, can you enter into a covenant with the God of Israel? <laughs> uh, you know that 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 you know people look for miracles all the time because they think that they're 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 convenience. And let me tell you, salvation may be free, but miracles are very expensive. God works a very clear miracle in your life, and you belong to Him, really. I mean, uh, that's been my experience in 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 my life, in my Pentecostal life, that 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 miracles are are are. Uh, they're almost like well the seal of the Holy Spirit. God has put His bulla on you, and you belong to Him. Uh, and I think a lot of people who experience miracles in their life forget that they belong to God. But 
Uh, just that to me, that is a very important dimension that John has brought up about uh, that that uh, giving dogs, uh, giving the bread of the children. And Jesus never uses the word dog; he uses the word puppy. So I think he's being extra delicate. But I think the point he's trying to make is: Are you ready for this commitment? And she was. So. Thank you, John. That was a, a great insight. Okay, now I have an interesting one. Oh, they're all interesting. Uh, this is from Karen, uh, uh, who is a, a fairly uh, recent, uh, or not fairly recent, fairly regular correspondent, for which I'm grateful. Today's gospel, and this is, when when did she say this? Uh, it was uh, September, oh, it's Thursday, the 30th she wrote this. Today's gospel is sending the 72 using the language of the harvest in such a way that we assume Jesus is referring to the harvest of souls. But my brain lit up with the idea that he was uh, talking about literally sending laborers into the April barley harvest. Uh, wasn't it usual for farmhands to be fed at a common table at the end of the day? Everyone is tired, in a good mood, ready to hear a good story, ready to hear good news. Remember the laborers standing in the town square during the grape harvest, who were hired at the eleventh hour. Ten guys could go into one town, hire themselves out to five different farms in the region, build a significant coterie of interested people who would share the news among friends that Jesus would soon be coming. I think it's very interesting that there's a, a literalness to uh, Jesus may quite uh, have been referring to a very specific uh, intention in 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 saying uh, pray God to send laborers out into the harvest, you know uh, um, that that uh, the laborers who received the denarius, well that was a parable, but this was quite. This could be quite literal, and um, that's, I just want to share that because it's interesting. I'm going to have to ponder it more, but uh, thanks, Karen. That was an interesting insight. Let's see how we do in time. I think I have time for another letter. Well, this is very interesting, too. Uh, this is from Rebecca. When Pilate gives the Jews a choice, I've read that the robber Barabbas is, refer- is preferred to Jesus, but is Barabbas a robber or a rabble-rouser? I'm confused. I've read accounts that describe him as a robber, while others describe him as a rabble-rouser. Now, I looked this up, and uh, I'm probably going to get it confused, but St. John uh, calls him a... Uh, a thief, a lestis in, in Greek, that's clearly a thief. Uh, but uh, other evangelists, I think Matthew, uh, you know, I don't have it right in front of me because, of course, my my computer is very uncooperative. But um, Matthew says he was a notorious or a well-known prisoner. And I think it's Luke who says, and he was taken in, in, in an uprising. So he probably was both a thief <laughs> and a rebel. So it's a both and. Uh, so, uh, but he was involved apparently in violence to, to the Romans. So. Uh, it's, it's, so it's a both hand. It's not an either or, I suspect. Well, that said, let us go to, uh, a bit of a break. I will come back with a word of the day and, uh, um, we'll go to phone calls at 888-914-9149. Israel, 
The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Doe, a deer, a female deer, Ray, a drop of golden sun, Me, a name I call myself, Far, a long, long way to run, Good grief. Fa. That's the way you say it if you're in England. But I'm not in England. I'm here in Illinois. All right, let us go to the word of the day. I got a letter. And this will, this, this, oh, the, don't forget the phone number, 888 914 Um, the the uh, I got a letter uh, asking about sackcloth and ashes. Our Lord Jesus spoke of sackcloth and ashes seemingly as a form of community penance or repentance. Are sackcloth and ashes a valid, efficacious way to do penance? So, if they're means of communal or even national, it's, I you know I I I'm not so sure that. You know, that, that we need to do the sackcloth and ashes thing all the time, but, um, uh, um, the, the, we, in a way we do. The, the idea of sackcloth and ashes, it, um, it brings us back to the book of Job, where Job says, um, or the quote that she's particularly looking at is, Woe to you, Horus, and woe to you, Bethsaida. The miracles have been performed in you. They would have been performed in Tyre inside, and they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Why sackcloth and ashes? Well, sackcloth was the garment of the very poor. Um, that, that, um, they literally mean sackcloth. You read in, in, I looked it up in Hebrew. You look in the Old Testament and it's the kind of rough burlap that bags are made out of. That's what it is. You're wearing an old bag. And ashes, well, Job talks about, I repent for dust and ashes. In other words, one one sits in sackcloth and ashes because uh, one realizes that that's all you are, you know, dust to dust, uh, ash to ashes, and and so I don't. I think the meaning of them. Jesus said, "When you when you fast and repent, wash your face. Don't let anyone see that you're fasting." So I I, I think that um, sackcloth might not be necessary. However, some of the great saints wore uh, undergarments made out of old grain bags. Um, I think it's very important for us to realize how precious cloth was in the days before the Industrial Revolution. Um, a, a wealthy man might only have a few changes of clothing. Uh, a poor man might have no changes of clothing. He, as the scripture says, he slept in his in his cloak. Don't take it uh, uh, for surety on a debt because it's all he has to sleep in. So the idea of sackcloth, it is, it is realizing your poverty and it is realizing your mortality. I, I think that's the meaning of sackcloth and ashes. You know, we never think we're going to die and we never think we'll, we'll be in need. So, okay, let's go to phone calls 888-914-9149. The, the phone is ringing. James from Madison. That was Inspector Cluzo, not me. What can I do for you? Hi, Father. I had a question about um, getting a gift for a same-sex couple. We received an invite 
to the ceremony and we di- we didn't go. I'm not at all confused about that, but I'm yeah. just curious. It's a little bit awkward. It's old coworker and kind of a longtime friend. What would you say to getting them a, a gift? I I just unless it's going to be a, a a thing that will I I I you know I, I myself I wouldn't now if there's something that you think would be particularly a blessing to them uh, such as a Bible you know uh, they might see that as sarcasm um, I, I don't think we need to acknowledge or celebrate uh, marriages that are so clearly opposed to. To what the Lord's purpose is in our life, He said, uh, "For this, a man and woman come together and uh, be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth." They're defying God. Why would we celebrate or acknowledge that? So I, I hate to be narrow-minded about that. You know, when a person has a sexual dysfunction, uh, the reaction of the Christian should be nothing but love and compassion. But the problem is, they're not seeing it as a sexual dysfunction, and so. Um, you know, to love someone is to is to will their good, and to convince them or to, in any way, hint to them that this is a good thing, um, is not to will their good. So, what gift could you give them that would will that would will them you that would will their good? Um, perhaps a. A novena card, <laughs> you know, uh, have have masses said for them somewhere and send them a novena card and say, you know, that that uh, I love you and I'm praying for you. You know, they might not take that very kindly, but um, uh, that might be the way to go. I, I don't know if that's the answer you're looking for, but it's a it's a tough thing in our times. You know, human beings are capable yeah. of a great deal of uh, sexual diversity. Uh, but that just because we can doesn't mean we should. So hope that helps a little. Amen, Father. Thank you. God bless. God bless you. God bless. We The board is totally open, and people wait to call till the last minute. Call now. I'll go back to some letters. Boy. Boy, oh, boy. Let's see. I get these these questions that would, questions that would cross the rabbi's eyes. Uh in the last two minutes. All right. This is from Brett. Is it reasonable to ask, is it fair that today we have things like the rosary and plenary indulgences from the Divine Mercy Novena when people in other times did not have this? Uh, Also, is it wrong to think that in the future there might be other powerful devotions which we can't even access because they have not yet been revealed to us? I wouldn't talk about fair. Remember that God chooses to be called our Father, and a good parent doesn't treat each kid the same. A good parent gives each kid what that kid needs. He might be a little harder on one than the other. And the kid thinks, well, God loved, or dad loved you more than he loved me. He said, no, he's, you're the one he loved because he, he saw your potential and he tried to bring it out. You see, God gives each age and each person in each age the grace they need. And maybe they didn't have those devotions because they didn't need them. Uh, we do. So that would be my my approach to this. So, okay, let me see if I got another letter here. Oh, we got Chuck from Naperville on. Let's go to Chuck. Are you with us, Chuck? Yes, I am. Hi, Father. How are you? 
Hi. Good, good. What can I do for you? I have two questions. I know it's a Friday afternoon. It's getting late. Um, would you rather have a softball or a, a high all. fastball in tight? Oh, then I'll get to rest over the weekend. So give me what you got. All right. The softball question is I'm a lector. And I've been accumulating yes. lectionaries every year. So what do I do with the lectionary after okay. the year's over? That's a very interesting thing. Is it like is it like a paperback lectionary? Yeah, it's a paperback lectionary. So it has um, all the readings. So the the the, uh, the Old Testament, the first reading, the second reading, and the uh, and the gospel. So it's our Lord's yeah. word. You know. You could just throw them out. That's not a problem. But most people get hinky about it. Very interesting thing since, well, since uh, before we used to throw me the hardball. Uh, there's things uh, in in synagogues called genizas. Uh, they're where you put scrolls that are no longer useful. Uh, and it's a funny kind of thing. Every every uh, Catholic home has kind of, we should call it the geniza drawer. Broken statues, old devotional books that are falling apart. You put it in that drawer and hope it'll get better. But it's not necessary. When a sacred, an item that is sacred in its use is no longer useful for that purpose, any blessing attached to it kind of ceases to be. The use is what's blessed. Now, that doesn't apply to the Blessed Sacrament. That's consecrated, which is different than 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 simply blessed so you can throw them up but most people don't feel comfortable with it so the next time you have a campfire burn it that's that's one of the things you can do uh that make you feel a little better about it but it is not in itself intrinsically sacred it's its use that is intrinsically sacred and and uh for us uh you know we treat these things with respect we kiss the lectionary that sort of thing but it's really the lord that we're reverencing so i don't know if that helps that answer the question sufficiently. No, that, that does. That does. But I, I think I'll keep it in my basement library for now. So I'll just keep accumulating them. Keep it in your basement library. When you get too many, have a nice bonfire, and then the neighbors will say, "Look, he's burning books. Clearly, he's a Catholic." <laughs> so, <laughs> at any rate, Thank you. so there you go. Now, what's the difficult question? The, the difficult question is, um, <clears throat> I have a nephew who uh, asked me to read a book. And it's written by a uh, Franciscan friar. And yes. some of the things he was telling me about it before I read the book, I said, this is right. Oh, you're breaking up. You're breaking up. Wedding. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Can you hear me now? So, Hello? book, yeah, book by a Franciscan friar. Franciscan friar, yeah. And just the things he told me about before I read, they sounded like they were in error. And then I read the book. I bought the book and read it, and yeah, it seems like there's a number of heresies, I would call them, that are in there. Not sure, not proper mm-hmm. church teaching, but he is a Franciscan prior, so there's no, I guess it would be called an imprimatur potest, maybe, or imprimatur. There's, not, there's nothing there. In the there is an imprimatur. There's nothing. There's nothing on, mm-hmm. the, on the beginning of the book. So. Oh, there, so there is no imprimatur or nihilobstat. Yeah. Yes. Go on. My question is, yeah, what what's the church's position on that? Because he's he's a religious, but he's writing a book that doesn't really seem to be following church teaching. Yeah, priests are not infallible. Martin Luther was a priest. Uh, uh, many of the the great reformers who who left the church were priests. Priests are not infallible. 
and this fellow didn't bother to get any kind of episcopal what what a neil imprimat what an, a neil obstat means nothing stands in the way of the book being printed imprimatur means so let it be printed and uh those are those mean the book has been reviewed by competent authorities and there is nothing in them that is harmful to catholic faith clearly this guy knew that that what he was writing was harmful to catholic faith and he didn't bother to to get an imprimatur or a neil obstat even if something has an imprimatur or a neil obstat, doesn't mean it's Catholic teaching. It means there's nothing harmful in it to Catholic faith. Doesn't mean it's Catholic doctrine necessarily. But in this case, you know, just fine. It's a lovely book, and uh, remember that that Jesus said, if I can pull up the quote, that uh, with ears itching, they will pile up to you. With ears itching, they will pile up teachers. Okay, see, I'm only the Reverend Know-It-All if my computer's working. And it has my... Ah, this is 2 Timothy 4.3. 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. In other words, this kid wants to hear this, and he wants you to hear it. Uh, because he doesn't really believe it. He knows it's not Catholic. So if he can get his uncle to agree to it, well, then it, then it, it, uh, it, uh, um, it, it strengthens his own position. He wouldn't want you to read it if he, if he really believed it. He knows there's something hinky about it. So what I would do is I would take one or two examples and find a place in the Catholic Catechism where it says, you don't do this or you should do that. They clearly contradict it. And just say, you know, this this guy is—he ceased to teach the Catholic faith, and I'm a Catholic, so that's what I would do. Does that help a little? That helps a lot, yeah. And that's kind of what I did as I was reading it. I was jotting down things, thoughts that came to me, which seemed yeah. correct. So, and then I, the deal I have had with him was he wanted me to read it. I said I will read it, but then you and I are going to talk about it afterwards because I had a feeling it was going to be like good, you said, hinky, good, and it is. So. Sure. Yeah, okay, well, yeah, thank you, yeah, uh, Father. Yeah. Have a great weekend. Yes. All right, very good. Hinky, a modern word meaning heresy. Have we got anyone else on the line, dear voice in my head? Fernando from Hawaii, how are you? It's taking a long time for the signal to get to Hawaii. Fernando? Fernando's gone. Ah. Oh, well. Chuck from California. That's still pretty far away from where I am. Are you there, Chuck? I'm here. Good. What can I do for you? Well, I had a question. Uh, my question is this. What is the Virgin Mary's maiden name and or her father's last name, etc.? Well, that's not really possible to say because they did not have last names at the time of Christ. Her name would have been, uh, what would have passed for a last name would have been Bat Yoakim. But Joachim, uh, her father's name, according to the tradition, and it's a very strong tradition, is Joachim. Uh, so uh, she would have been called daughter of Joachim, Mary, daughter of Joachim, Miriam Bat Joachim. Uh, so that would have been her last name, but um, uh, they did not have last names uh, the way we do. Uh, does that help a little? Well, oh, Fernando's wait, back. Oh, go on. 
Uh, is that a Go tribal on. name uh, that, uh, that Jokami or whatever? Uh, no, Joachim, or, Joachim. It's just a it's just a Hebrew name. Uh, uh, um, it's just it's just a Hebrew name. It's it's a, it's a guy's name, like Joachim. It's a common name now. They didn't have last names. Last names are a late medieval invention, and so they didn't have them. Uh, you might have uh, things from. Uh, 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 you might be called by your town. Jesus was sometimes called Yeshua Minzadit, which means Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, so I hope that helps. Fernando, you're back. Hi, Father. Hello. Hi, what can I do for you? Hello, what yeah, can hi, I do Father. for you? Um, I had a question uh, regarding uh, my friend's a Navy veteran, and uh, he uh, is wanting to be cremated upon his death. And he was wondering if we okay. could. Okay. The ashes buried at sea um, with a navy burial. Um, is, 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 there, is there a proper way to do that? No, no. If he's a Catholic, his body belongs buried in, in consecrated ground. If he were to die at sea and they dumped him overboard, that would be okay. But that would be a, a situation of necessity. But we bury, even you can be cremated, but it's expected that the ashes out of reverence for the human body are buried in uh, consecrated ground. So uh, that's the party line. The best I can do, though the seas around Hawaii, I bet, are beautiful. Still, uh, for him to have a resting place, his relatives will be very grateful for that. Tell him it's a kindness to his relatives to have him buried in a place where they can come and pray for the repose of his soul. Well, speaking of prayer, Drew is coming up, and he does a lot of that. So, stay tuned. <laughs> 